you got a call from the president on your cell phone. I did. We talked about the situation in Africa with Ebola. And uh, I think I, I do remember a quote he said to me. He said, you know, it's rare that you get the chance to save hundreds of thousands of lives. And I thought, yeah, I have the opportunity with the teams and, and the other, our other partners to save hundreds of thousands of lives. But it's also, it's, what if I don't? We thrive in that kind of pressure, and that's what we're built for. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you Scott Guyberson, who is the president of AMI Expeditionary Healthcare, which provides medical solutions and services to some of the most remote and challenging environments in the world. And we're going to dig into that, but just wait to hear about his background. He has had a 27-year active duty career, retired as a two-star admiral in 2021, and also served as the acting deputy surgeon general of the United States in 2013 and 2014. He was selected by the Military Officers Association of America, which, by the way, is the largest military advocacy organization in the U.S. as one of the top 100 veterans in the last 100 years that you need to know. And he's also had health-related leadership roles in clinical care on American Indian reservations to fight disease outbreaks, worked in multiple countries on health diplomacy missions, and running the headquarter operations of a uniformed service of the United States called the Invisible Corps, which we're going to dive into a little bit here today. Scott, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Hey, Ben. Good morning. It's good to talk to you. So, y'all, before we get on, my my family and I just got back from Alaska and had an amazing trip. And Scott was just relaying a little bit about it. Scott, you said for you, Alaska is a special place. What what comes yeah, up? Yeah, absolutely right, Ben. Uh, starts off as a child. My father uh, took me on a camping trip in Alaska when I was a very young young person. Uh, I think I was probably a single digit age, and we spent I think three weeks in Alaska hmm. camping. But uh, to this day, I've been there for work for different reasons, and I think it's one of the most powerful places in in the world uh, from hmm. from a, a nature beauty, just a powerful. Uh, you know, experience to be there and, and to share time there with with family and and friends and now colleagues I have done. So it's it's been a great place for me. Well, so we were out there not three weeks. I wish we would have been there for three weeks. <laughs> we well, we saw three bears, brown bears, uh, not super close, but close enough. Right. Did you see? Have you seen uh, bear wildlife? Sure, yeah. sure. We've seen all the wildlife, the the bear, the moose, the wolves, and and of Everything. course the American eagles, which are uh, a sight to see all the time. I mean, there, there are, y'all, I mean, I, I've seen eagles before, but not like in Alaska. I mean, right. they are everywhere and their nests are huge and uh, majestic yeah. people, majestic birds. And uh, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a powerful place. It's inspiring. It's inspiring to be there mm. and it gives you the energy you need to do your job sometimes. Yeah, I bet. So expeditionary healthcare. When I saw this and we were, we were, we were researching your background. I thought, man, this seems 
extremely cool. Uh, but also like a lot of problems can pop up because that's the nature of expeditionary, meaning that you're in parts of the world that don't have a lot of healthcare access. That's why it's called expeditionary, right? That's what, true. What's the scoop that's on true. this organization? Well, it's a, well, the organization is just what you said. It's a solutions-based organization that provides healthcare solutions for a wide variety of challenges. And it it doesn't have to be global. We certainly have a global portfolio. Uh, we own uh, brick and mortar clinics in uh, countries that aren't generally the countries that people visit. Uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, South Sudan, well, uh, Libya. So these are places that, you know, are strife with a lot of different challenges, whether, whether it's political conflict, whether it's lack of resources, vulnerable populations. Uh, just a lot of challenges. And so so we own uh, medical clinics in those places. Uh, we work with WHO, the United Nations, different entities like that. Uh, and then we have our global, por- our domestic portfolio, which is also uh, tied very closely to the U.S. government. So hmm. places that aren't necessarily, um, uh, you know, easy to get to or, or or easy to function in, for example, the border. So we have a border health crisis and we have contracts all along the border with the U.S. government. Homeland Security, mm-hmm. Customs and Border Patrol, uh, and we work in a, in a variety of settings and a variety of either remote or austere conditions. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, someplace that nobody can get to. It could be in a city, but if it's if it's uh, a challenging situation or an austere condition, uh, that's sort of our specialty, and sort of so we we certainly function well in that sort of a crisis environment. Well, wow. um, we work with states in a lot of different places, so uh, you know we have a different set of customers. Uh, but we pride ourselves on responsiveness and sort of the the ability to function in just about any type of environment, even the normal ones. So, 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 so it's, it's interesting to me is you have such a huge buildup career wise to this role. I mean, it's and I want to dig into all that, but I'm curious since you've been in this role with expeditionary healthcare, do you have a favorite leadership story or experience that's come up since you've been uh, at? At the helm of the new organization. At the helm of the new organization, well, you know, a lot of it in the new organization has, has been dealing with COVID. Uh, so we were a COVID <laughs> response organization. Yeah. Much like everybody else, we spent two and a half years uh, and still a little bit working COVID issues. So depending on what the the um, contract was or what the situation was, uh, you know, it, it played a big role in our business and the revenue generation throughout the last two and a half years. Uh, but, but I can tell you that probably um, the ultimate, the sort of story for me in terms of crisis leadership, uh, you know, uh, dealing with all kinds of, of mm. you know, leadership issues and competencies would be um, when I was uh, in command of the Ebola response for the Commission Corps. And that was in 2014 and 15. Mm-hmm. So uh, I could I talk about that a little bit. Yeah, if you want. let's hear that. Ebola yeah, was I mean, scary. That I mean, well, it, that was really scary because of all the news about what was happening to people that 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 contracted it. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, so Ebola was uh, a challenge. I, I just first of all, it was a privilege to be uh, chosen as as command for that. Uh, the Surgeon General, the Secretary of Health, and and the President of the United States, you know, were aware of of myself leading the the charge there. Um, and and the president, President Obama at the time, uh, tasked us to open up uh, an Ebola health unit, uh, which was part of the missions. I mean, the, the bottom line strategy was stop Ebola at its source in Africa. 
So right there was a big enough challenge for all of us. And uh, it involved the Department of Defense. It involved the CDC. It involved the State Department because it was working with ambassadors, ministers of health from other nations. Uh, So we had never done something like this in our history. And just to paint the picture, like you said, you're talking about one of the deadliest diseases on the planet. Um, uh, You know, when we think about COVID, and this is just a relative sort of uh, uh, comparison and, and believe me, COVID killed million, you know, millions and millions of people, infected hundreds of millions of people, which Ebola doesn't do and didn't do. But as far as case fatality, and that's if you're diagnosed with Ebola, there's a range between 40 to 80 percent you're going to die. And so it's incredibly lethal. With COVID overall, it was less than one percent. You're talking about less than one percent case fatality versus, you know, up to 80, 90 percent case fatality. Mm. So if you got Ebola in Liberia, there's a very good chance. Flip a coin. Uh, if you're going to make it or not. So so our role was to open up a clinic for healthcare workers. And I say our, it's the Commission Corps was was a primary uh, partner in the response for the United States. And and I got to lead that. And and the primary mission for us was to open up this health clinic. And it was not a health clinic. It was to take care of Ebola patients. So it was a hot zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about leadership mm-hmm. competencies. I mean, you know, we've never done this before in our history. And um, I had to think of all the different leadership competencies that I could possibly engage, right? So tactically, operationally, uh, strategically, and, and in each, and in each compartment, I sort of compartmentalized it. And so, you know, and, and, and what you do for tactical peace with your troops that are in the hot zone with mm-hmm. you, uh, is much different than you do strategically at the highest levels with the president of the United States or, or an ambassador. And, you know, it goes from in the base level inspirational talks, like giving a battle speech to the troops that were going in the hot zone every day that had to have the resilience and the and the uncertainty and the stress level was off the charts for them. And so as an admiral that, you know, my goal was to give them comfort, reframe mm. it, maybe uh, focus on your skill sets versus the uncertainty, focus on mm. what you should be doing and, and how good you are at it versus worrying about, you know, getting afflicted with Ebola. And, and then, you, you know, you, you compartmentalize. So the next piece, you know, operationally, People process systems, right? You know, uh, the three things that you think about operationally. And then at the highest level, strategically, relationship building. I mean, to build relationships with ministries of health in different countries at the same time with the ambassadors of the U.S. over there in those areas, at the same time with the Secretary of Health and, of course, uh, the President of the United States, which, you know, a lot of leadership competencies in one fell swoop. And uh, Hmm. it was probably my, it was, it was the most rewarding time you'd think it was hard and complex, but it was so mission oriented and so mission driven that it was almost easy. Although you were working 20 hours a day and and you were in the midst of a deadly disease, it was sometimes a lot easier to function than say functioning in Washington with politics. Right. So, um, and, and we, and I pretty much guarantee you almost a hundred percent of the people that are working out there with me and that were dedicated to it from the army, the Navy, the, the commission Corps, everybody, would have gone right back out there and done it again uh, in a blink of an eye. Um, and we'd still do it to this day, probably. But yet, to, you know, we'd probably prefer that over some of the other things we have to deal with. You know, Scott, I'm glad you mentioned that. So you really let us in behind the curtain on how stressful this was, which it was stressful for me. And I was just reading about <laughs> it and not finding it on the front lines in Africa. Right. But I, I think there, there's a real nugget in there that really resonated with me when you talked about the mission and how when the mission is clear, everyone's working together, 
and how it almost helps relieve the stress because you're not worried about all the tangential stuff going on. You're focused and you get everybody moving together. And it's almost, it, it sounds like you're in the zone. That's exactly right. Uh, all the preparation should have been there before we got there. Um, it was surreal to be on the ground, but you're absolutely right. It was, it was mission focused. It was clear, clear vision, right? I mean, and that can be translated to corporate, the corporate world. I mean, uh, your team, in my opinion, your team's only as good as the unified vision that you have. Right. And, and that's analogous to a mission, right? We deploy for a mission. We all have the same outcome in mind. So if you can create that sort of unified vision in a company, uh, which is what we try to do here. And, and I'm sure, you know, many CEOs do that all over the world. Uh, and it's not easy to do, but if you can do that, then you have a team focused on a singular, uh, you know, outcome, which makes it a lot more efficient and helpful. Well, tell me about a term that I've read you using called decomplexifying. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I've had a lot of leadership, you know, opportunities. Uh, I've been privileged throughout my career to 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 have some of the variety and diversity of some of the things that I've been allowed to do, and I, I sense that that's probably similar to a lot of uh, military careers where where people get to do a lot of different things in a lot of different roles. So, uh, you know, if you go out there and if you think about leadership development or developing leaders for the future, if you googled it right now, Ben, you'd probably get four billion hits, and I and I just googled it right before this ta- this interview and i and it was over 4 billion hits if you put leadership development or leadership in the google search uh that's it's an overwhelming amount of of information and and for me uh you know decomplexifying leadership or leadership development is has become sort of a mantra for me because it, it is complex and when i was growing up through the core and and through leadership experiences i'm trying to um figure it all out. You know, I'm hmm. taking academic courses and fellowships and, and, and experience OJT on the job training and putting it all together. But now I, I try to help other executives or up and coming executives or C-suite to, to decomplexify this leadership conundrum. And, and, and I want to say that it, it, it's not, it's, it's, I believe leadership isn't complex. Okay. But I also don't believe it's easy for everyone. And so and so here's it's a kind of a nuance. So it takes a lot of practice to become a good leader. It it's uh, but it only is based on a few competencies. If you it, the reason that it isn't easy is because it takes discipline and it, and it takes humility. So that you have a mindset of continual learning, even at, you know, now I'm in my mid 50s. And yes, I'm sad to admit that, but I'm in my mid 50s. And and I'm still learning and, and, and I have that mindset of constant learning, but it takes discipline and, and humility and it takes energy and resilience. And so I, I often say that um, anyone can lead because it's not complex, but very few will be great leaders because it's not easy. Mm. And so, um, you know, so I've tried to decomplexify this leadership and, and I, and I kind of, I call it infectious leadership. And that's just because I've been around infectious disease my whole career. I've been involved, unfortunately, in infectious disease my whole career. Sometimes it's gotten to me, meaning I've, I've, I've had, you know, certain infections, but I've also been around it a lot. I was around anthrax. I was around Ebola. I was around COVID. I was uh, H5N1, H1N1, and all, all the different things that were newspaper, you know, very visible crises in, in the United States and abroad. And, 
somehow I had roles in these things. And so I've always been around it and, and developed this infectious leadership type uh, uh, thing where I tried to decomplexify leadership. Wow. So what's the biggest difference between fighting another country or terrorists versus fighting global infections? That's a great question. Uh, I, I would say the biggest thing that I see is it's you have a lot more insidious progression. Uh, you don't know and see the enemy right up front like you would if you were, you know, if you're trained to fight, if you're a Marine, you have all the skills to go and train and fight and your specialized warfare assets. And you can go and you know your enemy and you know all about your enemy for the most part. Um, and and we're very good at it. And that's that's our Marine Corps and, and our Army and our Navy. And, and we have a little bit of a different, you know, situation because it's a little bit amorphous and, uh, you know, infectious disease where we still in today's society learn how to fight it every single day. Obviously, COVID brought up a lot of uh, issues, whether it's, uh, um, you know, procedures or process or now very, very big issue with political polarization we have. Um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how we we do it again in the future because it'll happen again. And I can't say when, but uh, we have to be prepared for that. So, yeah, it's 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 very different. Um, uh, fighting, you know, disease in different places is also different because there's different resources you have and different people you work with and different cultures you have to understand. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a lot different, I think. Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of people miss that in terms of, Hey, it's a war either way. It's and a war either way. It's, it's tough fighting a global pandemic or even regional pandemics. And that's what just what you've been doing all this time. So thank you for your service on that. And, yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about the invisible core. You, you mentioned that there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a documentary coming out on PBS really soon. That's not like, I'm definitely going to check that out, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Good catch. So, so the commission core of the U S public health service is one of the eight uniform services of the United States, um, military, just like, you know, the army, Navy, air force, Marine Corps, but, but unarmed. Um, and we've been around for, you know, since, uh, 1889 as a uniform service. So many, you know, hundreds of years, uh, uh you know, as a uniform service but very small and focused. So we're kind of like the Marine Corps of uh, public health. And uh, we've been around and been involved in so many different things. So yes, there's a, a documentary. Uh, I saw it at the end of May. It was released. I believe it's available now on the internet. You can go look it up. It's called The Invisible Corps. And it speaks to the Commission Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, spent my you know 26 plus years in the Commission Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service, working with some amazing people. and it really is invisible yet it it's woven into the fabric of everything we do and and you wouldn't realize it so you know a lot of the leadership in cdc is 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 an officer in the commission corps mm. uh, a lot of the leadership in the fda a lot of the leadership and i'm not talking about political appointees because that's the very top of any organization even the department of defense but for us you know the national institutes of health cdc um you know they're they're all commission corps relevant and and salient. So uh, we also get deployed a lot and we get deployed to just about any disaster you could think of, especially in the last 20 years, all the hurricanes, Rita, Katrina, Irma, um, mass shootings, Boston, mass, Boston Marathon bombing, um, uh, Ebola, COVID, uh, anthrax, World Trade Center, you, you name it, we're there. Um, uh, maybe not as visible because we don't come in with, you know, guns and ammo, but we come in with, uh, 
the, the knowledge of how to respond in, in, in terms of a incident command system. And we integrate into things very well. So whether it's a state response for a hurricane or a federal government response for bioterrorism or an overseas deployment like we had with Ebola, um, we're always there. And, and you, you know, if you look close enough, you see us in leadership roles. So I think it's a great thing to check out. And, and certainly I wish the name of the, or the title of the documentary wasn't the invisible core. I would love to make it the very visible core, but, uh, you know, we're small, but mighty. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I've learned a lot about it, you know, here today. And I think a lot of our listeners are too. And it's really cool to think about the role that the military plays in these areas where people don't realize it. Absolutely. Can, you know, and I was thinking, why was, why does it make so much sense? And I'm like, the, who is the best, you know, what is the best organizer or the, what is the best part of the U.S. government for getting things done in an emergency? It's the military. So yes. it makes total sense that in these situations, there would be, you know, a, an organization um, that would that would jump in to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we deploy on command and uh, it, it is it is very similar, almost exact to the fact that, you know, hey, we've got to deploy these Marines to, you know, whatever war or whatever turmoil or or uh, environment that has unrest. And, and we're very much the same way when there's a, a, a health crisis or even bioterrorism, like we said, in 2001 and two, um, you know, we're deployed and we we drop what we're doing at our jobs and we and we go. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So what's it like giving briefings to the top of the the government entity. I don't know how high up you went. Was it the White House or Pentagon or yeah. whatever? Actually, like? well, I mean, I, I have to say that's not a normal thing that I, as an admiral in the Corps, I wouldn't communicate with the president. But but during Ebola, I actually uh, spoke to him and uh, he actually called my cell phone in, in Liberia. Uh, it was a great story, <laughs> but, you know, you, you don't often get a, a call from the president of the United States on your cell phone. And um, it was uh, an honor to lead. But, you know, I was so focused on the mission. Um, it, it didn't really sink in until after I came back from seven months of, of back and forth the, to West Africa and the team was done with their mission that I got a chance to really think about how, how that all played out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like briefing anything else though. You know, you have your, you have your, your situational rep, your sit rep and, uh, um, your report to give people and let them know what they need to hear and, and you carry on. But um, it's obviously a, a great honor to do that, regardless of president. Uh, you have been very apolitical across my career, and, and you sort of have to. It's our commander in chief, regardless, and wow. give them pretty everything cool. they need to know. It was pretty cool, yeah. You got a call from the president on your cell phone. I did. And you were just cool as a cucumber because you were focused on the mission. I've been freaking out. I, I felt like I was cool as a cucumber, but maybe I wasn't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was a it was a great call. We talked about the situation in Africa with Ebola, and uh, I think I, I do remember a quote he said to me. He said, "You know, it's rare that you get the chance to save hundreds of thousands of lives." And I thought, "Yeah, I have the opportunity with the teams and and the uh, our other partners to save hundreds of thousands of lives." But it's also, it's, "What if I don't?" 
<laughs> so, mm. you know, there's certain there's a certain amount of huge pressure. I mean, it's only Ebola and it's only the rest of the globe. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, no it has pressure. some pressure, but but you know what? That's we thrive in that kind of pressure, and that's what we're built for. Um, you know, I'll tell you a quick just a part that about about the core and about leadership. Um, we we had uh, we only have about sixty five hundred folks in the core commission core all officers all medical public health experts or professionals um so we don't have enlisted ranks like some of the other services but everybody we had 6500 within within probably 72 hours i had 5000 emails that said i want to go to ebola in africa if i want to fight the deadliest disease on the planet with you in africa so we had no problems deploying wow. as many as we needed at the time i think we ended up deploying over a thousand uh, officers but these are all medical experts have gone through medical school, dental school, pharmacy school, nursing school, whatever schools they went through, environmental health, you know, engineers, all, all the types of specialists that you would think you'd deploy to something like this. So, mm. yeah, anyway, um, back to your point. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was great, great experience. And, and certainly speaking with the president was great. What's the one trait you wish you could instill on every employee and why do you think it's important? Hmm. The one trait I would give to every employee, I would say, um, be the solution, not the problem. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is, this isn't necessarily, well, this probably goes for C-suite too, but, um, you know, as a, as a manager, uh, we want people to come to us with issues and challenges, but we also want them to have a solution in their back pocket, because I think that helps people really, uh, grow. Because it's not a complaint anymore. If you come with a solution, it's not just you complaining to upper management uh, that that it's uh, um, an issue. Um, mm. You know, sometimes when we get caught, managers, uh, C-suite folks, we forget that they don't bring a, pro a solution to the table. And we just jump in because, you know, in order to get to our positions, we've been problem solvers. Uh, and and so we yeah. jump into the problem and start fixing it for them or with them. And but But if I had a, an entire staff and team that was problem solvers, you know, that'd be a great organization, right? I mean, I think any CEO or president would love the fact that everybody comes with a solution to the problem, <laughs> a well thought out solution, maybe one that was negotiated or one that was discussed with other people, you know, uh, not just their own solution to the problem. So. Yeah, I love it because it drives, it helps the overall situation that you're in, but also it's, it's really a call to action for them to take charge of their own development. And, and exactly funny. right. So, so exactly good. right. What advice would you give your younger self today? Uh, yeah, and and by the way, where did you grow up? Because you said you took that young trip to Alaska. Like, where did you, where, where did you <laughs> yeah. grow up? And what, what's the advice you'd give your younger self? Well, uh, first question: I, I I grew up in upstate Pennsylvania, Wilkesbury Scranton area, and so uh, great great upbringing, small town upbringing, and uh, you know a lot of fun to be there. So what's the, what would I give my younger self? Oh my goodness, uh, Ben, I don't think we have enough time, uh, in your, <laughs> in your podcast for me to give my younger self some, some more advice. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'll always be in the mindset of, of learning how to lead and, and, and learning and developing. Right. So even, like I said, now I still learn and, and, and grow. Um, I would say, you know, don't be as defensive as a first mechanism i'm i'm trying to <laughs> expose myself here because you know uh you read the the wonderful bio in the beginning i see it as as a, as a highlight reel i know 
all the failures behind those great accomplishments. If you mm. think they're great accomplishments, I say, well, yeah, but I, I failed. And, and it's not all the Instagram real, you know, um, <laughs> the great, perfect picture, uh, yeah. a lot of stuff in, in behind that. So I think, you know, in, in early on, I would take things personally, be more defensive. Um, then I learned that, that there's always two lenses or more to look through mm. to find the right answer. And there's always more than one right answer. Um, so I think if I started off in the early days that I was really passionate, no one could ever accuse me of not being a passionate, uh, sort of individual. Uh, but you, you tend to get defensive sometimes be like, wait, are you, are you saying that I didn't do a good job or, you know, but it really isn't that it's just, they have a different set of variables they're looking and a different lens they're looking through. And if you realize that right off the bat, it it Mm. sort of sets a tone that's a little different. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that my younger self was pretty go-getter and, and as you said, I've been pretty busy across my career. So, um, yeah, I think that's the, and, no, that's and great because that's where it ties perfectly to your point about learning, because if you, if you are, when we all are defensive, our, our learning starts to shut down. And, uh, when you're kind of open to the feedback, even if it's not from a person you want to hear it from or the message you want to hear, that's where learning starts to kick off. Now you mentioned a series of failures that you had beneath all of your series of series of highlight reel that I that I read off there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite failure that helped you learn uh, something new, or something? You know, I, I think one of the most impactful failures. I'll go with what one that stood the test of time, right? Because it it impacted me across my entire career because it happened early in my career. So luckily. My failure, not that I haven't had failures recently or or just like everyone else, but but very early in my career, uh, I was working in uh, Gallup, New Mexico on an Indian reservation as a clinician provider. I was very frustrated with something personally and nothing to do with work, but I was in uniform. I was at my duty station. I was working and I I picked up a pencil and I threw it towards the back of the room. Uh, there was no public involved, but other officers and other uh, staff members of the hospital were there and they saw m- this pencil come flying by. Um, didn't hurt anyone, anybody, but I, it, you know, I actually got penalized, you know, for the doing that quickly and appropriately from my captain, who was the commanding officer at the, at the hospital, uh, that I did that reacted completely inappropriately. Um, it was not a big deal. And it was certainly, I, I thought I had you know, there was a lot of things going on in my personal life at the time that that got me frustrated. But boy, it really set in motion that I needed to separate um, any frustrations or emotions mm. that I have at home from the workplace and and always mm. be professional. Mm. And maybe I didn't realize it at the time how much it would have impacted my professional career. But, you know, you're in so many situations as a leader in, in or in a C-suite or, of course, in my career and the end of my last 11 years as an admiral where. I dealt with political, you know, issues, uh, political, uh, political appointees, uh, people that, you know, you, you had to really work very closely with and you mm-hmm. had to remain, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how upset inside, no matter how somebody else may frustrate you or be completely wrong, you have to remain professional. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's, there's a quote that I remember, um, somebody gave me, and I don't remember where I got it from. I don't know who originally said the quote, but, uh, it takes 20 or plus years to build a reputation and five seconds to destroy it. 
And, and I've lived by that my whole career probably because, uh, it, it is absolutely true. You can, you can destroy, uh, your respect, your integrity, your reputation immeasurably by doing just a quick little thing. So it takes a lot of discipline. Once again, I go back to that word that to, to remain at that level and be professional. So that that's a failure. It was early on in my career and it, it almost imprinted on me that this is the way I'm going to act now for the rest of my career. Now, if it's on the side, if I have to, you know, go hit a heavy bag at the gym because I'm frustrated, that's fine. But it doesn't mean I don't have the emotion. It means I control it. And I'm really self-aware of how I respond. Yeah, such a good point. And for listeners, uh, it may not be familiar with this world. And correct me if I'm wrong is, so political appointees change every so many years, but the people in the organization run the organization are there like yourself for a very long time. So that's correct. It can be a heck of a roller coaster ride uh, for you. <laughs> and, it, and, those, it is. And, it, and so it that is. lesson really it seems like it helped you because there's been a lot of change in administrations, you know, since since that time. Absolutely. And as my own personal opinion, but I, I've seen more political polarization over the years, over the last two decades, uh, since I've been yeah. at the higher levels of the core, which, you know, you interact more with political appointees than you would at a lower level, obviously, just like any other organization mm -hmm. that's especially uniform services. So, uh, you know, my last 11 years, I, I did spend quite a bit of time um, learning each administration will come in and I learn from them and, and they certainly learn from us. So uh, it, it it is an interesting dynamic. And if you're in the outside outside of DC and, and, uh, looking in, it, it, it looks a little different from the, than the inside looking out. And, um, and that's all sort of, I'll say about that, but, uh, it's, it's great. It definitely builds some leadership competencies, put it that way. So you mentioned some situations you may need to go quote, hit a heavy bag at the gym. <laughs> Are you, so, so what is your favorite stress relief, uh, activity outside of work? Yeah, well, I mean, it would be staying fit as I can and and fit uh, physically. It, it it's important. Uh, fit mentally is important emotionally. But you know, for me, it, it is a release to go and uh, uh, you know test myself or push myself as much as I can in 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 a gym of some sort and a combination of activities. Now we have to do that for the military anyway. In the uniform, we had to have you know physical fitness tests, but just mm -hmm. a daily grind. Um, I mean, you you know from all the research that's been ongoing with neurochemistry i mean it's and many research suggests that it's as good as taking you know antidepressant medication or mm -hmm. or uh you know anti-anxiety medication it we release neurochemicals that that absolutely help our our state of being so our wellness and so yeah i love it um that's my release you know so is, is it boxing or weightlifting or what, what, oh, what are you doing <laughs> well yeah, I said figuratively hitting the heavy bag, but yeah, I do a combination of some some cardio and weightlifting, and and sometimes I take a team. We have a team that does. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Tough Mudders or Spartan races. We do the yes. sort of the like the combination uh, obstacle course race and and distance running type thing. I'm I'm not the type that goes and runs a marathon. I I think my uh, sort of ADHD personality uh, <laughs> won't allow me to just run continuously for 26 miles. I need to do something in between. So that's where the obstacles come in and, and we have a lot of fun doing that. Well, I'm under barbed wire. Yeah, sure. down a tower. It's a mission, right? Get, get, through, filthy. get through the obstacle course, you know, <laughs> get a little dirty. Oh, well, that's great. And even cooler that you do it as team building. Yes. Yeah, no, that's great. 
Yeah, well, Scott, perfect. this has been a lot of fun. Uh, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? Uh, well, a couple things. Um, you know, I, I think as a C-suite person uh, and, and, and a leader, I think I think of three traits. And I'll just end it with the three things that I think, you know, if you want to be successful, and this is probably more so for, you know, more senior leadership versus, uh, you know, staff in general, but have exceptional self and situational awareness, hmm. right? Be able to self-assess where you are, you are, what your capabilities are, where you need to improve, and then what the situation is, because you have to adapt your leadership style to the situation. Second thing is put very competent people around you. Hmm. Um, I have what I call two ICs, which are my second in command. Throughout my career, I've had a second in command that I think is more skilled than me. Now, I might be in a senior position uh, or above them, but you know, there's so many skilled people out there. If you find one that fits your needs and, and it's really, you know, a compliment to your skill sets or even they're more competent than you be humble enough to say, you know what, I need this person around me instead of hmm. putting people around you that aren't as good. And then the last and my favorite thing to always do is to try to inspire people. Um, All you know, right. that's a, that's, that's really it. Thanks Scott. Ben, I really appreciate the time with you. It's been great. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.